Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Episode 8, The Art of Getting Lost, where we will be looking at chapters 18 through 19 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of self-care. As a reminder, each week we will be examining a section of The Name of the Wind through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We'll also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phronemos of the week. After which, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. Finally, we'll wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher. Second of all, our discussions naturally assume that either A, you've already read the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as the novella and short story, The Lightning Tree and The Slow Regard of Silent Things, or B, you're one of those weird folks who doesn't mind having crucial plot details from the future revealed to you ahead of time, as if you were some sort of wizard who ages backwards. Needless to say, beyond this point, here be spoilers. One last thing, as a note to our community, it is perfectly fine to critique the text as you read it. I mean, that's what we do. But that being said, we will not stand for any abuse or harassment of the author responsible for it. All right, and so now we're coming to our 30-second recap. But before we do, we have some special audio for all of you wonderful listeners that have noted that maybe... We haven't done as well at this challenge as we would have liked. We've each flubbed it once. So that audio will be inserted now. Hi, everyone. Thank you for being a patron. So as you may remember, in episode six, was it? Yep. Will lost his first challenge and went over his 30 seconds. Because he's silly and has chosen to shorten his time frame on his recap. And will be subjected to a punishment of eating a wonderful fruit, namely cherries. Will's punishment food, which he got to pick himself, so I think it's a little bit of a cheat, is dark chocolate with cherries in it. Yeah, I mean, I'm... I'm not going to lie, I'm not looking forward to this. If I don't make it out of this alive, you can have all my stuff. I already kind of have all your stuff. So I can have your guitar. You could have my guitar, yes. Okay. You heard it here first. If Will dies because of cherry consumption, which he's not allergic to, by the way, I get his guitar. But the good news is I'm not the only one who failed. (laughs) Because in episode 7, Phoenix failed in her more generous 45-second allotment. It was a longer chapter! And yet, she failed. That's not the point. So, (laughs) 
<laughs> she's got her own punishment because she gets to eat the delicious raspberries. But again, raspberries are a tricky fruit, not always in season in the winter here. So she's got a uh, raspberry tea, which, I mean, that sounds delightful on a nice, cold, almost winter day. In the nice gray Pacific Northwest. So, are you prepared for this? What happens if you if, if it hurts you? If you die, what, what happens? Do I get your stuff? You can have my copy of The Princess and Mr. Whiffle. Well, that's delightful. <laughs> All right, uh, so who goes first? Well, you lost first. Okay, here we go. Here goes nothing. Enthralling video right here. This is the content that, uh, that the kids crave these days, so... Seems like you don't want to do this. I don't. All right, so here it is. This is a Cherry Tango chocolate bar from Giardelli's. I promised the comments about the nastiness had nothing to do with your chocolate and everything to do with your cherries. Not sponsored. Here we go. How is it? Oh, just hit the cherry. You had that look on your face with the chocolate. No, it is. How is it? Bad. It's mm. bad? Can I have some? Mm. I'm going to prove that it's not. Ugh. That piece doesn't even have any cherry in it. That's perfectly delightful. Mmm. I just got the cherry flavor. Ugh. That's wonderful. Mmm. Oh. Ugh. Ham it up. Oh, uh, well, never again. Never again? Never again. They're all yours. Yay! <laughs> now, it's your turn. I know you've been dreading this. I don't like raspberries. Weirdo. I'm a weirdo. Yes. Or at least a weirdo. Fair point. You sure there's no cat here in this? I mean, we saw Sokka helping you make this. I made sure. Okay. Take a real sip. I did take a real sip. Take a, take a real sip. I took a real sip. Okay. Just to prove that I'm not as much of a baby as you are. Mm. Okay, I believe you. Ugh. Mind if I try? Take it. Please take it. Don't spill it, but... Take it. Nothing against the tea, really. Oh, yeah, that's quite nice. Nope. Who got punished here? I think I did. Nope. Well, either way you slice it, here's to one more day above the roses. One more day above the roses. <laughs> All right. Ugh. <laughs> and we're back it was terrible wasn't it it was wonderful and terrible raspberries are gross cherries are disgusting Blech. so in the interest of not having to ever eat cherries again I'm going to make sure that this time I get through my recap nice and speedy like well as it has been noted by some of the people we've talked to 
we both kind of cheated with the foods that we chose. But I would still prefer not to have to eat a real raspberry ever. I would love it if you had to eat more raspberries because I could then have an excuse for having more raspberry stuff around the house. Blech. So with that unpleasantness out of the way, I'm ready to do my recap. Please put 30 seconds on the clock. All right, and you start in three, two, one, go. While maddened with grief, Quoth hunts the woods for the right leaf. For he remembers Lackleth's words about the animals and the birds. While his mind goes to sleep, his thoughts start to creep back to his pain, which both waxes and wanes. He plays his father's lute until his fingers bleed, for it's his only deed that can numb him to the horrible truth. Quoth then wanders the road until Seth and Jake help lighten his load by giving him a ride, and down the path they do glide to a city Quoth's never seen that's called Tarbine. Oh, 31.05 seconds. Damn it. Ooh, more cherry things for me. This time let's actually pick out things that are less cherry-flavored and more actual cherries. Damn it. I'll make you a smoothie. Mm. All right. So with that out of the way, I'm not going to contemplate this too much. I don't want to. Down this road lies madness. Poor Will. Yeah. Playing the world's smallest violin for you. No, you're not. You're just rubbing your fingers back and forth. There's no violin there. Anyway, this week we're talking about chapters 18 and 19 through the lens of self-care. This week we're talking about my favorite chapters, at least for the beginning of the book. Roads to Safe Places and Fingers and Strings. These are both brief little chapters, but they're very evocative and heartbreaking. So we're going to be trying to tread lightly for on this we tread our hearts. There are a lot of very evocative sentences throughout these two short chapters. As someone who went through a major tragedy as a child when my father passed and I was 10, these four doors spoke to me intensely. I found out late at night on the last day of my winter vacation from school that my dad had passed. The one door that speaks to me the most is the third door, which is of madness. Because it was 11 o'clock at night, I shouldn't have been awake. We got a phone call and I just knew and I screamed, and I screamed, and I screamed. There's a lot of that time of my life that I did step through, the door of forgetfulness, the door of forgetting. There's a lot of that period of my life that I cannot remember now. I'm sure that a part of my mind went to sleep and I know that a big chunk of my mind stopped recording events. It's definitely something that I think a lot of people who have lost people in their lives can empathize with. 
I certainly empathize with it. I was also struck by this, and you know, as I was rereading this for the third or fourth time, something hit me, and I think it's here where he talks about going through that door of madness, that I think we learn why Kvothe responds to Ari the way he does. I think he sees a little of himself from this period in her. It's very touching the way he empathizes with her and just goes to her where she is without asking her to be any different than she is, without asking her to feel any different, which gave me a newfound appreciation for their relationship, I have to say. Ari is one of my favorite characters. I like characters who are somewhat broken, as long as they're treated carefully and kindly by the author, by the people around them. And I think it's safe to say that Patrick Rothfuss and Kvothe do seem to share an affection for her. Absolutely. That was something that jumped out at me about this section. We see Kvothe doing every little thing he can just to take care of the things he can control in his life. Starting off with just basic subsistence, finding water. Of course, he's not sure he can trust the water, so he takes a small drink at first, has to wait a few hours to make sure he doesn't get sick before drinking some more. Then discovering that he's desperately hungry because it's been a long time since he ate. He sets a snare, remembering some lessons from Lackleth, who is a woodsman who traveled with the troop for a time. He sets a snare that does not kill the rabbit that he catches, and he can't bring himself to actually kill the rabbit himself, so he lets it go. He says, I felt sick and vomited, and it's not like he had anything in his stomach. It would have just been the water that he drank. Keeping in mind also that just having to think about the violence that he's just witnessed, any reminder of that would be something that might be bringing back some of those memories that his mind is pushing down right now. What I like also about this particular chapter, this particular section, is how hazy and dreamlike it feels, which feels true. It's one of the truest things that I think both as an adult has said throughout the entire book. I think it's the truest part of his story. It's a section that invites empathy and we see him expressing empathy here, in this case for the captured rabbit. In this case also for his younger self. Yeah. He doesn't just immediately decide he's going to become Batman. He doesn't want to just take revenge. He wants to survive and make sense and reconnect to the happier memories in ways that he can. I'm not sure that he wants anything. Yeah, you're right. I think he's just, at this point, just going into almost a hibernation mode, his brain is. It's very clear that he has picked up on certain details rather than big picture. It's easier for him to focus on needing a shelter for his loot than it is for him to focus on having a shelter for himself. Yeah, I noticed that too. Now, in that dream, at the end, right before he wakes up, 
there is talk about the standing stones, how there's not just one standing stone, but many. They formed a double circle around me, and one stone was set across the top of two others, forming a huge arch with thick shadow underneath. I reached out to touch it and awoke. This is not touched upon again in the one and three quarters worth of massive book that we have left. It's just something to note. And I wonder if that could be a reference to the lackless door. The door of stone. Could be the door of stone. Or it could just be the dream of a fevered mind as it deals with grief and loss and tries to process things. Yes, but as we have noted, nothing in these books seems like it's placed there by accident. I would say that things happen in people's life by accident, and if this is to be anything approaching a true retelling of his life, there's going to be some accidents in there. I'm willing to go either way on it. I don't have a strong opinion one way or the other. There might also be some dropped threads. That also happens. Sprawling narratives tend to drop threads. And it's interesting, the figures that are giving both his instructions that he's using to process it. It's Lackleth, who is a character that we've never encountered before in the narrative. And never have since. And then also Abanthi, who obviously we think of as a teacher. And then Quoth's father, Arladin, shows up as well, sort of as this booming guide voice almost. Why do we stop at the Waystones? Tradition mostly. I think that this is an interesting point because the chapter name is Roads to Safe Places and it's marked by a Waystone. It's also marked by a dream that is capped by Waystones. It's where Kvoth ends up making his camp, which seems fitting given his Family's traditions, with Waystones always being a safe place, being perceived as a safe place. But also as the start of a journey. And it's pretty clear once he's got his camp set up that his mind starts to grow bored because he no longer has pressing concerns to keep him busy. This is something that anyone who's ever been camping can also appreciate sometimes. I think that you just don't like camping. There's a little of that. This is where we see him start to move beyond bare subsistence and start thinking a bit more about his emotional needs. I'm not saying that he's all there, but he's doing some healing and processing during the section where he picks up his father's loot for the first time since the tragedy and starts playing. First, the songs that he knows, the songs that his parents taught him, and then moving into making up his own songs, and then making a soundtrack. These are themes and collections of notes that are meant to be evocative of moods and things that he's experienced. He specifically states, I think this is when a small part of my mind started to slowly reawaken itself. Make no mistake, I was not myself. He also wavers back and forth between calling the loot his and the loot his father's. I think that is 
a very intentional choice on the part of Patrick Rothfuss, the writer, and then Kvothe, the narrator. One other thing about this section is this is where he's starting to do something that is just to make himself feel, well, anything, really. It reminds me of an interview that I recently heard with Steve Kerr on the Men in Blazers podcast. For those of you who do not follow sports, Steve Kerr is the coach of the Golden State Warriors basketball team, and the Men in Blazers is a show about soccer fandom and existentialism. In it, Coach Kerr talks about while he was in college, his father was the U.S. ambassador to Lebanon, and his father was killed by local insurgents. This profoundly altered Coach Kerr's life at that point. His father had been his anchoring figure and someone that he looked to for moral guidance and spiritual guidance and just general life advice. At that point, Coach Kerr was a player on the University of Arizona basketball team. And two nights after he got the news of his father's passing, he played the best game of his life. The interviewer, Roger Bennett, asks him if there was some sort of inspiration or anything like that behind it. And Coach Kerr's response really reminded me of this section here where he says, no, it was nothing like inspiration at all. I hurt so badly. All I wanted was just a few bits of time where I could do something that made me feel good that I could just do. So I didn't think about anything else. I just played basketball and practiced basketball. That's all I did because that's all that kept me from thinking about this profound loss, this void in his life. And he throws himself in and he plays the game of his life. But at the end of the day, he would have given all of that up just for one more day with his father. It's a very touching interview. I think it's worth listening to, again, even if you're not a sports fan. I think there's some profound lessons there about empathy and grief and loss and what it takes to make a whole human being. How these parts of human existence are the things that make us unique and they can make us stronger. They can make us better. They can make us kinder. That's beautiful. Thank you. This little section, this couple of paragraphs where Quoth spends three days trying to capture the way that wind turning a leaf sounds in his brain. This is the part of the book that I sent to our friend Shawnee, who created our wonderful music from the intro and outro of the podcast. As a fledgling musician, if you can even call me that, I have been slowly learning guitar and ukulele and those moments when you can be in that zone of whatever I play sounds fine to me. It sounds good to me. It sounds like my heart is pouring into my music. It's a connection to something other than just your hands holding that instrument. And it's almost meditative. And it's beautiful prose on this part of the book. At a certain point, this could almost be a part where Patrick Rothfuss could have written himself into a corner, written himself and Quoth into 
a walled-off section of grief. But there's a catalyst for Quoth to continue moving. One of his strings breaks. So he teaches himself to play with just six instead of seven. The string snap almost snapped him. He copes with it by this ability to adapt and figure out what the six-string version of these songs would be. But then another string snaps, taking him down to five. At that point, he knows what to do. He strips off the string, and he can continue on until a third string breaks. And it's this more than any sense of starvation or freezing or the onset of winter that drives him to seek out human civilization again. He goes to find the nearest road, then does a little bit of quick orienteering. It's the art of figuring out how to find your way around. Before he continues on, let's talk a little bit about why we chose self-care as the lens to look at this through. I think for many of us that suffer through depression or anxiety or other mental health problems, there is a sense of guilt that comes with trying to care for yourself when you feel like you need to do anything. And I think we forget that we can't power through everything that life throws at us by sheer will alone. Both taking more than three months to just live in the woods, playing music, meditating, eating whatever he can find. This is the place where he cares for himself the most. I know that a lot of times when people think self-care, they think pampering yourself or something like that. But in this case, this is the exact opposite. He is deprived of pretty much every comfort he's ever known and is essentially having to rebuild his life without any of the support structures that he was fortunate enough to grow up with. Mind you, he's 12. Right. As a 12-year-old, he is foraging for his own food. He is responsible for his shelter, for his upkeep. Just the basics of keeping his life moving in a given direction. This is not him just pampering himself. This is him taking the time he needs to heal some of the pain and the wound that he's been dealt. I don't think he comes back the same by any stretch, in large part just because he never was given the opportunity to rebuild any of the support structures. At least at this point, he hasn't. He's still living basically feral. He finds relief when he is mostly ignored. He runs from any contact. When he's finally accosted by farmer Seth and Seth's son Jake, he's initially terrified. His last encounter with anyone who ever spoke to him involved terrible violence and destruction. So it takes him a little while to trust, but he finally gets coaxed into the wagon. Mostly because it was easier to agree than it was to run away. And at that point, he had also been starving a bit since he didn't have his food stores or the ability to patiently forage for food along the road. And this is also where he gets shown this extremely lovely little bit of simple kindness. As Seth, without being prompted, 
shares his loaf of bread with Kvothe. This was an act of pure altruism. There was no expectation of any kind of repayment, no hope of benefit on Seth's part. He just thinks, this is someone who could use a ride and I've got room in my wagon. The way that Kvothe reacts, he saves some of the bread for later because he doesn't know when his next meal will be. When asked about the one thing of value that he has, his loot, he clutches it closer to his body and says it's broken. Even broken, it's the truest reminder of the life he's had stolen from him. And here's the first time where he hears someone singing since the tragedy. Yes, it's just Seth and Jake singing Tinker Tanner and having a good time with it. This very simple song. You can see Kvothe slowly reawakening a little bit as he thinks more about his old life. Has fond memories of his family, his parents, and the rest of his troop. But it is also a thing that makes him ache. It hurts him. The feeling that I got when I read this was that it was the feeling that you get when the Novocaine wears off at the dentist and things are starting to ache again, but it's kind of a relief just to actually have a feeling, even if it's not strictly all happy. And that is where that chapter ends. So we've touched a little bit on how these themes have touched our real lives, and I would like to also bring in some other examples of characters in media that we have enjoyed that have gone through a sense of melancholy or loneliness whose authors or creators have treated them nicely and well while showing us these emotions that sometimes people don't want to confront. So both of us enjoy playing video games and right now I am really, really still enjoying playing Fire Emblem Three Houses, although it is officially now my fifth playthrough. There are two characters that I will always recruit, no matter what. One of them has major depression issues, and one of them has massive anxiety issues. And it's Marianne and Bernadetta. My first playthrough I didn't recruit Marianne, and spoiler alert for some of the things, I didn't recruit every character that I could have on that playthrough, and then some of them come back and are your enemies. But Marianne is absent from that. At least when you're playing as the Blue Lions, she doesn't come back as an enemy. And it struck me a little odd. And then I played through a different track, and I did recruit her. And at the point where some of the characters can become enemies, I get a support conversation that makes it very clear that if you don't recruit her, she will have killed herself. And it's effective. It's a gut punch. I don't know about Bernadetta because I've always (laughs) recruited Bernadetta. I've always been able to. But they treat her anxiety as something that is real. Her agoraphobia, her reclusiveness... Many of the characters by the end have either a respect or show her kindness 
and help her. And it's beautiful and sweet. And I absolutely love that. In a game that maybe you might play just for the strategy elements, there's this beautiful story and these beautiful relationships that you can build. There are other games that I have felt similarly about certain characters. Gone Home is one of them. And it's learning about your little sister and how her life has gone through found objects. And it treats the characters within that story with respect and love. Are there any that you can think of that stand out? I've been playing Jedi Fallen Order, which also deals with a lot of issues of grief and guilt and loneliness after a tragedy. I mean, yes, it's a major AAA Star Wars game, and yet it's dealing with an emotional core that's pretty potent. And that's part of what made me enjoy the game. I'd also like to say that even as it's great to enjoy media that treats its characters kindly, it's also equally important to treat yourself kindly. In times of grief and loneliness, if you feel like you need help, please reach out. You're welcome to tweet at us or go on our Facebook page. Any help we can provide, we absolutely want to. By that same token, even if you just call up an old friend, that can go a long way. If you need professional help, do what you can to get it. Even just reaching out to one of your friends, if they're your friend, you're not a burden. The way that I've had to think about this in my life is if one of my friends needed help, of course I'd drop everything and help them if they reached out and asked. And it is unfair to my friends to believe that they would be anything less than loving and giving towards me. Exactly. If I would give myself the benefit of believing that I would help any one of my friends, then why shouldn't I give my friends that same benefit? That goes for spouses as well. Of course. Point being... You're not alone. We care. So with that all said, we're going to continue on with the formatting of our show and bring you the Fronimos. Just know that even if we are complete strangers to you, we'd like it if you reached out and said hi. Alright? Now we get to the point in the podcast where we speak about our Fronimos of the week. Yeah. This time it is my turn. And it's a little bit of a challenge because at least the first chapter, the literal only person is Kvoth. But I have a few other options that I was going to float. Okay. The first one may seem like a cheat. The second one isn't a real person in the section. And then the third one may truly be the person that I choose. All right, well, let's see. It's not like you have to worry about punishments. Says the person who I get to feed a cherry to. Go on. All right. My first one, which may feel a little like a cheat, is actually Patrick Rothfuss. The reason that I chose Patrick Rothfuss is because of the way that he describes 
the doors of grief through adult Quoth, who is ostensibly the narrator at this point. But having heard Patrick Rothfuss speak at certain events, this feels a lot more like him speaking through his character. And I chose him as an example of practical wisdom because he's not saying you have to just instantly get over a tragedy. You don't have to instantly process your grief. And Quoth takes months of solitude just sitting in it. And no one in the story, no one outside of the story, as in the narrator, looks down upon Quoth for having to process for such a long time. And he is not instantly better when he gets the catalyst to start moving. And I think that that is true for anyone going through a grieving period. You're not instantly better simply because you have to be moving. Yeah, it does seem like Quoth is really just starting on a journey at this point as opposed to at the finish line. So that's why I chose Patrick Rothfuss, though, to continue on with my other two potentials, because Pat is not really a character in his book. But I think there are some people who could probably use that model of practical wisdom for themselves, so I think you are on the right spirit. The next one is Lackleth, because Lackleth, while really actually a dream that Kvothe is having, is the put one foot in front of the other survive. And while you may not be thriving, putting one foot in front of the other and surviving is a way through the tunnel of grief. Yeah, that kind of reminded me of the anxiety hack that you sometimes hear people discuss where when going through an extreme emotional event, it helps to ground yourself in the immediate here and now and focus out from that. I can see Quoth kind of doing that a little bit here. Now, it certainly takes him some time, but it does have an effect of helping him to center. And then for the one that feels like it's a character in the story that we can actually look at and choose as someone to model ourselves off of. Seth, the farmer who gets Quoth's attention, notices this little boy who is very clearly alone, bedraggled, starving. And with such casual kindness, almost kind of picks him up like a little egg, plops him into the cart, feeds him, and is kind and gentle. And remarkably generous, too. He's a farmer. He doesn't have a whole lot, but he shares what he has with Quoth without even any reservation. That's real charity right there. The only thing he asks is, hey, where are you going? I'm just going to say that all three of those are very valuable. And I think that they each have something that maybe some of our listeners could use. On to an interesting fact. Yes. Now it is time for us to take to heart the lessons of Master Elodin, and so we're going to learn an interesting fact about our own world. Historically, we've been picking a lot of science-type things. Now I'm going to go into the realm of history. Now this is one called The Bare Necessities. Today this is going to be a historical drama about an unlikely hero from World War II, 
Private Wojciech Wojtek Persky of the Polish 22nd Artillery Supply Company. So this young soldier was rather more hirsute than your usual war hero, though, because he was neither Polish nor human. He was a Persian brown bear. After the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany had carved up Poland, a group of soldiers and refugees formed a small army in exile to help the Allied forces retake their homes. While escorting the civilians to a refugee camp in Tehran, Iran, one of the civilians, an 18-year-old girl named Irina Bokiewicz, discovered a group of Persian kids playing with a creature in a sack. When she came closer, she discovered that it was a small brown bear cub that one of the children had rescued in the mountains after a hunter had killed its mother. One of the Polish officers, Lieutenant Enel Tarnal... Tar yeah. I'm going to have a hard time with all these Polish names. <laughs> so forgive me if the pronunciations are bad. Tarnowiecki noticed Irina's interest in the cub and offered the kids some food and a Swiss army knife in exchange for him. The cub was small and underfed, so Irina and the rest of the travelers took to feeding him diluted condensed milk from an empty vodka bottle. As he grew up, Irina recognized that she and the refugees were not equipped to take care of their new charge. The Polish soldiers of the 22nd Artillery Supply Company had taken a liking to the cub and brought him under their wing. They named him Wojtek, the diminutive form of Wojciech, a Polish name which means joyful warrior. Wojtek's principal guardian in those days was Sergeant Peter Prendis, a 46-year-old who would go on to become the cub's surrogate parent, wrapping the bear in his army coat on cold nights. The others nicknamed Prentice Mother Bear for this. Wojtek would grow large on a diet of fruit, marmalade, honey, syrup, and on special occasions, cigarettes, his favorite treat, which he would eat rather than smoke. Prentice and the other soldiers taught young Wojtek to wrestle, salute, and drink beer and wine. While deployed in Palestine, the soldiers gave Wojtek free reign to wander the camp except for one location, the shower tent. Wojtek, who had grown up in a temperate mountain environment, often found himself overheating in the arid desert climate and would douse himself in the communal showers whenever he could to cool off. Because the water had to be trucked into the camp, it was a luxury the soldiers could ill afford, so Wojtek was kept locked out, miserable and hot. One day, Wojtek discovered the shower tent unlocked and decided to take advantage of his good fortune. Inside, he discovered a spy hiding out waiting to break into the camp's ammunition compound. Wojtek reared up, startling the intruder and alerting the camp's guards, who quickly arrested the spy. Wojtek's position there changed from favorite mascot to beloved hero. The bear and his human friends would go on to travel through Iran, Iraq, and Palestine under the British Middle East Command, and later travel through Egypt and Italy. By the time they reached North Africa, Wojtek was too big to ride in the cab of the army's trucks, and took to riding in the truck beds where he was free to stretch out or climb around on the cranes for entertainment. In 1944, when it came time for the unit to join the British efforts officially, Wojtek ran into his first brush with human bureaucracy as the British strictly forbade animals to accompany troops into combat and definitely not board troop transport ships. Say that five times fast. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Wojtek's friends tackled this by fighting bureaucracy with bureaucracy, enlisting Wojtek as a private in the Polish army with a serial number and paybook of his own under the name Private Wojciech Wojtek Perski. Wojtek's most famous act of heroism occurred in 1944 in the Italian town of Casino. There, the Allies spent four months assaulting the German lines in a series of pushes. 
The 22nd Artillery Supply Company was tasked with supplying their artillery units with materiel that they would need for their assault. Materiel? Yes. So materiel is specifically the warfighting equipment. Thank you. Watchtech's company would drive their trucks up narrow, winding mountain roads in the dead of night without any lights or anything that might betray their location to German artillery. Upon reaching their destination for the first time, Watchtech anxiously climbed a nearby tree to get away from the constant commotion. As he watched his friends unload the munitions and boxes from the trucks, his curiosity won out and he joined the efforts, carrying hundreds of pounds of shells, mortars, and equipment in a single trip without dropping a single shell. His human friends helped keep his interest and energy up by supplying him with snacks and affection as he worked, and the unit was able to unload their equipment far quicker than originally expected. With Watchtech's aid, the 22nd Artillery Supply Company supplied more than 17,000 tons of ammunition to the Allied effort. After the battle, Watchtech was promoted to corporal for his valiant service, and the company honored him by adopting a depiction of a bear holding an artillery shell as their official logo, which they wore on their uniforms, banners, and trucks. As the war drew to its close, the Polish army found themselves in Winfield Camp for displaced persons in Sunwick Farm in Scotland. There, Wojtek made himself useful by hauling logs and fencing materials around the farm for the people working the fields. Perhaps most importantly, he lifted the spirits of his fellow refugees, who hadn't been to their homes since 1939. The local Scots made him a celebrity and would offer him eggs, honey, cigarettes, and the occasional piece of candy. They even made him an honorary life member of the Scottish-Polish Society, an event they commemorated with a bottle of beer for him. After a year in Winfield camp, the people began to disperse. Some chose to return to Poland, while others elected to remain in Scotland rather than return to the Soviet-controlled state. Peter Prendis, Wojtek's original mother bear, spent the year with Wojtek at the farm and at the conclusion of fighting knew that Scotland was a better place for the bear. Prendis borrowed a truck from a local member of the Scottish-Polish Society and drove his furry friend to the Edinburgh Zoo, where Wojtek would live his final 16 years. By all accounts, those were happy years where the Scottish folk would attempt to speak to him in Polish and fed him treats all day. Today, a statue of Wojtek stands triumphant in Krakow, Poland, and another stands in Edinburgh. It's really, really sweet and really, really cute. The people who took care of the bear are nuts. They made do with what they had. And while none of this is what I would ever recommend that you do with a bear... (laughs) No, because starting off with the kids with the bear in a sack, if the mama bear was anywhere around, they'd be dead. But that's just it. There was no mama bear. So you do definitely win. This was interesting, and I like that you went with a historical reference rather than a scientific one. You only have to have one taste of cherry. Still one taste too many. So now we come to the time where we share seven words from the book and from our life. Phoenix, it is your turn to find seven words from the books. There are a number of really poignant and or good choices. There's a lot of things that are seven words that are really thought-provoking but also do not work really well for this segment because out of context they don't make a lot of sense. But there are a few that really stuck out to me. The first one is needless to say playing these things hurt. 
in reference to when Quoth was learning to play Riding in the Wagon with Ben, Singing with Father by the Fire, Watching Shandy dance, Mother smiling. But I wanted to choose something that was a little more hopeful. This casual kindness made my chest ache. That's a good one. Seth ripped off a piece of his bread, put butter on it, and gave the poor little starving Quoth a large portion of his food. It's a great section there. It's very beautiful. Again, that charity unasked for element is really important. I think we could all stand to be more like that. So for mine, I have, then we wrap up with seven words. Cute. So we finally got our Twitter all set up. Pretty quickly got attention from the people at the King Killer Wiki. And Will had a lovely little conversation where he explained how our podcast works. The very last thing that he said was, and then we wrap up with seven words. And that was completely by accident, and they quickly caught that. Wait, 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 wait. Did you mean to do that? No, I did not. But you covered yourself, and you actually did say, but of course I did. (laughs) But yes, that was the one I chose, just because it was fun. A little meta. I like the meta ones. And with that, we wrap up. So, Will... Thank you so very much for potting with me. Thank you very much for potting with me, Phoenix. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapters 20 and 21 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of suffering and grace. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. We would like to extend a huge thank you to Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production and editing, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, please become a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get access to our show notes, custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, and other exciting items. And as always... Here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Let me make sure I don't have any little peanut particles. You said peanut. Yes. What did you think I said? Peanut. What were you worried I'd said? Peanut. (laughs) Ha ha ha.